Hawaii effectively cuts off gun sales. Plus, gun rights lawyer Costas Moros on his victory against California's new carry restrictions. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no hold on me. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. Of course, you can also buy a membership if you want exclusive access to hundreds of analysis pieces and exclusive stories that you will not find anywhere else. Uh, and uh, this week, we are examining a big ruling out of California, major implications for uh, everyone in that state and well beyond that state. And that is why we have Costas Morris, who is an attorney for Michael and Associates, who is uh, representing, sorry, who's representing uh, the California Rifle and Pistol Association. Uh, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, Costas. Thank you for joining us this week. Thanks, Stephen. It's always a pleasure to be on the reload. I think I might have the record for most appearances. I'm not sure. I need a check. Uh, it's probably Cam Edwards, but <laughs> oh, that's on. true. I'll get you, Cam. I'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> you have been on a number of times. Obviously, okay. you. Uh, are very involved in both Second Amendment advocacy and uh, in the sort of writing from time to time uh, for publications like The Reload, who's written for us, um, uh, but also uh, in the legal sphere of Second Amendment advocacy, like in this case, where you were one of the, the lawyers on uh, May v. Bonta, which is uh, the, new, uh, the new big story for the month. Uh, it effectively blocks... California's Broom Response Bill, which had added a whole slew of new gun-free zones to the state's roster out there. And uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background on exactly what the judge found in that case? Sure. So a bit of background. So although California was a May issue state before Bruin, it was actually a county-by-county basis. So most non- Coastal counties were actually shall issue. So you had over 100,000 Californians with CCW permits before Bruin. And when you had a CCW permit in California, it's actually a really good state when it comes to gun-free zones. There's very very few of them. You know, it's basically tracks with federal law plus um, some strict rules around school zones in California um, and a few other places. But other than that, it was pretty good. And that's one of the things they wanted to correct here when Bruin happened. And uh, this law essentially made everywhere you could think of modeled just like New York's law, uh, a sensitive place, you know, from from private businesses, if they don't post the sign, what we call it, which is what we call the vampire rule to parks, playgrounds, bars, uh, all sorts of stuff. And California went to step even further by banning for most of these places, the surrounding parking lots. So for example, if you go to the mall, and there's a restaurant that serves beer and wine, you know, that's a place that serves alcohol and you also can't carry in the parking lot. And because you can't carry in the parking lot, that means the whole place is off limits, even if you're not going to that business, you know, so that they, they California does its own little uh, touch to these things to make them even worse. So anyway, of course, we sued. I think we filed our lawsuit before Gavin Newsom even signed the law. Uh, so he signed the law in September. We filed our motion and we finally got a ruling last week. Uh, we went in for a hearing on December 20th. Uh, the, the ruling was out an hour after the hearing. Clearly, Judge Carney was just uh, giving the state one last chance to convince him, but they didn't. So uh, he issued his ruling. And I think other than Wolford, uh, which was the Hawaii case, we've got the most expansive 
win. We, we didn't lose on anything. He, the judge Carney basically gave us a win on everything we challenged. Uh, and although we didn't challenge all of SB two, because some of the provisions applied to stuff that was already illegal anyway, under state or federal law. And a couple others were like nuclear facilities, which fine, we can agree nuclear facilities are off limits. But, uh, other than that, uh, we challenged basically everything and won on everything. And then the state immediately filed its, uh, motion to stay with the ninth circuit. And we, uh, filed our opposition to that yesterday and expecting a ruling tomorrow. So that brings us up to today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So pretty, ex pretty expansive ruling, as you mentioned, uh, and, and it in included blocking that the parking lot, uh, exemptions yes. or, or the parking lot rule that the California had added as well. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most significant rulings on a broom response bill to date where uh, you, you've had a, a number of lower courts in the federal system uh, blocking parts of these broom response laws in New York or New Jersey or uh, Hawaii, as you mentioned. But this one really goes uh, and blocks essentially all of them outside the ones that weren't in dispute. Um, can you just walk through, in your words, the, the judge's reasoning for that? Yeah, so Judge Carney, uh, contrary to what you might be seeing on Twitter and other social media criticizing him from people like Gavin Newsom and others, is actually a pretty middle-of-the-road guy if you go to his hearing. Uh, he's not Judge Benitez. Um, so if you uh, – at the hearing, he asked questions like, so this isn't going to legalize carrying of assault weapons, right? And we said no. So clearly he has some sort of reticence about that. He doesn't seem like a gun guy. And he also said – so people with CCW permits are very vetted in California, right? And he was asking all these confirmatory questions. So I think we confirmed what he believed to be the case, which is, you know, in California, it's, you know, even after Bruin, it's it's quite a process to get a CCW permit. You're very vetted uh, and you carry a handgun, not a rifle of some kind. And because of that, uh, Judge Carney is very much a fan of the right to self-defense. He emphasized that big time. And at the hearing, he asked, he provided examples of, you know, court staff being assaulted on public transportation, including an incident that thankfully didn't become worse, but did involve a knife, you know, is something that could have escalated into a deadly encounter with court staff. And he provided the example kind of jokingly of, you know, he has a panic button he can press and U.S. Marshals will flood into the courtroom uh, if something's going wrong. But there isn't that level of security, you know, in most places. And when there isn't that level of security, people have the right to self-defense. And I think that colored a lot of his ruling, which is that if the state is not willing to provide security like they do at at uh, courthouses or at airports, um, then a place isn't really sensitive. He even hinted both in the ruling and at the hearing that he's not even okay with the restrictions on schools. You know, if you read his ruling, he seems like, yeah, there's at the hearing he said there's a tradition of banning students from carrying at schools, but there was never any laws around that in the 19th century around adults. Uh, and, and, uh, but we didn't challenge that because we were just trying to preserve the status quo. That's a lawsuit for another day, maybe, but um, so, so Judge Carney did take an expansive view of the right to self-defense uh, protected by the Second Amendment, and he also insisted that, uh, like we argued, uh, that there really isn't room for an analogical inquiry when a place existed in the past. So most of these places, bars, you know, parks, um, hospitals, these all existed in some form prior to 1900 banks. And and they didn't restrict carry. And a big argument the state made was, 
well, yes, but places have changed since then. Well, sure, but the problem of armed people in a hospital, just because hospital technology is higher today, hasn't really changed. It's still the same threat as it would be in the 19th century, assuming that's a problem. And uh, Judge Carney agreed with us that the state has to be held to a stricter standard. Uh, he disagreed with the Second Circuit, which basically gave New York whatever it wanted in terms of uh, analogical reasoning. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's actually a point I want to focus on for a moment here. Uh, this contrasts very starkly with what the Second Circuit Court of Appeals found in the challenge to New York's sensitive places restrictions, um, where the Second Circuit uh, upheld most of the state's sensitive places restrictions using a relatively broad view of uh, historical analogs. You know, they didn't, they weren't necessarily relying on, uh, you know, uh, literal bans on carry at many of the places that existed, uh, as you mentioned here, uh, throughout American history. Uh, instead, they, they took a much broader analytical approach to it, or sorry, <clears throat> analogous approach. They, they relied on other sorts of gun restrictions that existed at the founding era um, and even well after that to uphold most of the modern gun-free zones created by New York in their broom response law. Uh, outside of the, there was some agreement, I will say that the the, the vampire rule, as you guys have termed it, uh, it was essentially banning carry, gun carry, even by licensed individuals on private property that's open to the public, things like stores or restaurants or, or something of that nature, um, which which really flips the, the way that the rest of the country has, just, well, the whole country has historically done this, uh, which is that you know, generally you're allowed to carry unless somebody says you can't by posting a sign. Um, and uh, so that you, know, you you've got a very different approach here in, in your case in May, um, where the judge uh, takes, I, I think he takes a pretty, probably one of the more narrow approaches to uh, analogs as well. Uh, you, you note that obviously he thinks that analogies don't work for a number of these areas because they existed during the founding and there weren't these sorts of restrictions then. Um, but also he's he takes it not just on guns being present in a certain location, but specifically on barring people who have uh, this level of training and uh, I guess statistically who people are who are statistically unlikely to carry out crimes. That's how he sort of framed the uh, people who get concealed carry permits, right? Because they don't, uh, they are largely more law abiding than the rest of the country um, or one of the most law abiding groups statistically at least uh in in the united states and he sort of frames it as that like were there these kinds of restrictions specifically on these kinds of people people who uh both qualify for and have gone out and done the work to obtain a special license that was the uh requirement he was really looking for and that is very narrow compared to some of these other uh, cases, right? And yeah, that, it's narrow, but it's it, it's narrow, but it's correct for two reasons. So Bruin tells us, in no uncertain terms, and the Second Circuit ignored this, by the way. Uh, we we argue that in our opposition to the state's motion to stay. But uh, Bruin tells us that when a problem existed in the past, like for example, armed people carrying in a bar, um, that existed. 
when that happens, you actually don't get to do analogs. You have to find a distinctly similar regulation. That's what Bruin tells us. You only do analogs when it's a new a dramatic technological change or a new societal problem. And that isn't the case for most of these places. Like I said, we didn't challenge nuclear facilities, but we acknowledge that that's an unprecedented societal concern. Nothing like nuclear facilities existed uh, prior to 1900, right? So you, if, if we did challenge that, which we don't, the state could, of course, do analogical reasoning and pretty probably pretty stretched analogical reasoning to justify that. But when something existed, Bruin tells us that there's no there's no license to go ahead and do the analogical, the more nuanced approach, as they call it. And as to uh, the concealed carry permit holders, like yet yeah, we presented data uh, both here and in an amicus brief in Hawaii about how law abiding they are from several different states. And the state is now complaining that that's basically interest balancing, but that's not what we were arguing. So, yes, uh, part of the preliminary injunction test, unlike a judgment, is balancing of harms, and it does go towards that. So even though Bruin doesn't have interest balancing, the winter factors for preliminary injunctions do. But anyway, but beyond that, the state is the one arguing that, oh, these places have changed dramatically, so we Right. But but it's only fair if you're going to argue that it's only fair to also acknowledge that in 1860s, California, anyone could open carry. There was no permit process. There, there was no restrictions of any kind. So, uh, whereas today, there's a pretty extensive process to carry. So if the state's going to argue and, and we're glad Judge Carney saw this, if they're going to argue that places have changed, it's only fair to also acknowledge that people who can carry have changed. They're far more vetted today. Uh, and that should play a role in it. It, it. You know, the the modern changes shouldn't only benefit the state. It should go both ways. And I think the Second Circuit, unfortunately, ignored that distinction. Yeah, I haven't really seen a judge uh, make that narrow of a, of a, of a <clears throat> determination before as far as what the actual analogy needs to be, including that aspect of it, that these are not just anyone caring, but people who've obtained a permit, which is a relatively difficult thing to do and uh, and has shown to be, uh, you know, these, these kind of people have shown to be very law-abiding uh, statistically. Um, so it, it was interesting to see that. And I do wonder if uh, perhaps that's going to be something that uh, shows up more in these kinds of cases down the line. Um, I mean, I imagine that's what you guys are going to continue to pursue as this case gets litigated, that sort of standard. Yeah, I mean, if California is not going to let us have constitutional carry, we're at least going to hold them to, you know, if they're going to make us get permits, it should at least work towards our benefit, too, in our legal arguments. You know, you're you're limiting the right to carry to a subset of people that can do an eight hour training course that can pay these fees that can wait sometimes several months, which we have another lawsuit about lengthy wait times. But uh, so if you're going to do all that, you can't then talk about what a danger carry is because the only the people you've extensively vetted can carry and the state, interestingly, you know, we, we did a we presented all the data in our opening brief and in the lower court here and in their opposition, which was exceedingly lengthy because we agreed to let them have a longer brief so we could have a longer brief. They didn't even try to rebut the data. They didn't they didn't you know present any counter data saying, oh, actually, people who carry commit crimes. Instead, what they argued was that, you know, if you let people carry, it can interfere with other constitutional rights because they'll in intimidate people exercising the right to free speech, which which doesn't make sense because California is only concealed carry. But anyway, you know, nobody would know you're carrying. And if you if they do know, then it's a crime because you're brandishing. Uh, uh, but um, yeah, anyway, I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> also, I'd imagine like I, I would imagine as well that um, 
intentionally intimidating people by carrying a yeah gun no that's totally also illegal. probably brandishing yeah nor did california anyway. demonstrate um, so yeah there yeah. there's their arguments yeah their arguments sort of uh to this point which you've seen uh in a lot of uh court cases um it's sort of the a vague intimidation instead of a specific sort of threatening of people because that is illegal basically everywhere as far as I'm, as far as I know you cannot intimidate somebody by showing them a gun with the intent of intimidating them uh not legally so uh, anyway um you know uh another point that I wanted to to cover real quick is I want to get into some of the critiques here right you've got the second circuit uh obviously a huge contrast um well, one thing that I saw um and I think you were even debating this a bit on Twitter uh, with uh, Jake Charles, who's an associate professor uh, that we've had on the show before, who, who um, is perhaps on the other side of this argument um, from you. Uh, but he, you know, he, he was saying that maybe the, in a certain sense, that the, the brevity of the court's ruling in this case um, is a, a, a Achilles heel of it that shows there wasn't enough analysis put in, whereas the this, this Second Circuit was quite thorough in justifying their reasoning. Um, what do you make of that argument? Like, do you, uh, a lot of the individual sensitive places that were um, struck down in this ruling were, you know, it was basically the same logic used on all of them. Do you see that as a, a weakness of it, or uh, how would you respond to that sort of criticism? I, I mean, with all respect to Jake, obviously he does disagree. Uh, but the the reason the Second Circuit ruling was so long, the longest of any of these cases, by the way, uh, because a lot of district courts have agreed with Judge Carney um, in their analysis. Uh, but the reason it was so long was because it was tortured logic. It was except it was trying to do everything it could to uphold the law, and even it couldn't uphold the vampire rule. But it went through a series of places and uh, applied logic that the Supreme Court has already rejected. For example, it kept coming back to this idea of a place being crowded, being a sufficient characteristic to ban it. When the Supreme Court rejected that, it said you cannot ban carry in places where people typically congregate. Uh, you can't ban carry in all Manhattan, for example. They, they use that as an extreme example. But uh, and, and, and also the Second Circuit essentially adopted uh, Professor Charles's view that uh, they should try and narrow Bruin from below. Uh, they cited his article approvingly, but that to me is not that much different than citing a dissenting opinion, because that's what uh, uh, Professor Charles's article is a critique of Bruin. It's not saying how to properly apply it. It's criticizing it and saying how courts can try and mitigate it. So the reason Judge Carney's ruling was a little brief, um, and by the way, I should note that the Second Circuit did go on at length about permit issuance. So although it was 200 pages long, not all of that was about sensitive places. But the, the reason Judge Carney's ruling was more brief is because Bruin, when applied fairly, you know, and I know I'm an advocate, but when applied fairly is not a complex analysis, especially when it comes to places uh, in the sensitive places context that existed in the past. Like, you know, like I said before, when a place existed uh, and Kerry wasn't banned, the Supreme Court tells us that that is relevant evidence that the modern law is unconstitutional. Um, and so you kind of see know, this the, state, the opposite way, essentially, that that uh, I mean, and, you know, obviously, yeah. this was your your argument in this case. Right. But 
but uh, the brevity of the, these, uh, some of this analysis is what is required by Bruin because some of these things are extremely straightforward, basically. Yeah, and, and you know, if 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 let's just say if 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 a place existed in the past, and you're going on page after page trying to exp- uh, look at supposed analog laws that are completely dissimilar you're clearly trying to do the work of the state to uphold the law instead of doing what bruin commands that's that's my take on the second circuit opinion it's a it's a it's a bad ruling that i think will be reversed we'll see when maybe the supreme court will wait till after a final judgment uh but i think it will be reversed and in fact we had justices alito and thomas refer to the district court opinion, which the Second Circuit reversed, as a thorough ruling. So that's, you know, some, at least some praise for it, I think. At least that's how I read that. Um, and and we'll see if they take action now or later to correct the Second Circuit. Right. And and yeah. I plan to have Professor uh, uh, Charles on again in the future. So, you know, we're, we're not just, that's I'd sure. love to, to get his Yeah, and, and to be clear, no disrespect to Professor Charles. I like him personally, sure. but clearly we are on opposite ends of the spectrum here on that. Right, which yeah. is why I would like to have both of you on so we can get a clear viewing, uh, airing of everyone's views on these things, because I respect uh, both of you guys. But um, uh, there was another critique uh, in in line with this that I saw also some reporters making about essentially that there is sort of uh, an outrage about how now people will be able to carry in banks or in the parking lots of nuclear facilities or, or um, you know, some of these other locations that were enjoined uh, by this ruling. But my understanding is that that's already, that, that doesn't change anything. That was, that's how things are right now. And that this law would have restricted the, these places as a new uh, feature, not so the judge is not really actually undoing anything, right? Yeah, and that's a big difference from some of our other cases where we're trying to reverse laws that have been been in place for a while, like a magazine ban, assault weapon ban, whatever. But here we are just trying to stop a law that goes into effect January 1st. And it was kind of disheartening to me to see uh, some people who – maybe I disagree with, but otherwise respect, who know better playing along with this and basically saying this judge allowed carry in these places. No, what this judge did was stop California from banning carry in these places because it's always been allowed. You know, people have always, you know, tens of thousands of people have carry permits in California and they've carried in places like banks and hospitals and playgrounds and parks without issue this whole time. And the state has not shown any evidence to counter that. Um, So I think what you got what you have is a lot of ignorance, you know, even within California of people who don't realize that uh, carry permits, aside from the L.A., San Francisco sort of areas, have been freely issued for years. And by the way, if you get a carry permit in San Bernardino County or Riverside County, you can carry in San Francisco and L.A. this whole time. <laughs> That's what one of the other ridiculous things about it. So you could travel to those cities and carry just their own residents couldn't get permits. Right, um, yeah. so, so it's always been a little. Silly. And it doesn't change. Yeah. Like, I think Banks was a big focus in this aspect for whatever reason. Um, and, uh, you know, you also, it doesn't change anything about how a bank itself could, uh, say that you can't carry a gun there if it wanted, like the banks can still do that if they want to. And it just seems like in California, my, I, just to be clear on this, I'm in Virginia and I carry in Pennsylvania and I'm getting my BC permit, you know, uh, I'm on the other side of the country here, but, uh, I believe it's exactly the same uh, in that a bank could ban carry if they want to, like any private property could. Um, But uh, otherwise, you know, if you have a permit, you're allowed to carry there and it's not an uncommon thing. 
Yeah, one of the things we argued, which was kind of amusing, is we we argued that not only could California not show a historical tradition of banning carrying banks, they couldn't show a modern tradition of banning carrying banks because until Bruin, not one state banned carrying banks, not one. There was a couple that had weird rules, like one was only open carry and the other was only concealed carry. I think it was Nebraska and one other state. But other than that, no state restricted carrying banks. There was up to 2022, none did. So the idea that this was some crazy ruling, it just it's more about ignorance, I think, and uh, uh, you know, skies falling, social media panic than it is based on anything. Real. Yeah. So you know, there was some yeah. there was some hoopla about this, and I just wanted to make sure that I understood it properly. Uh, but yeah, that, that sounds about what I expected as far as how the law currently works. It's not, and, and again, you know, we'll, I want to move on a little bit here to the, where things stand. You mentioned that obviously California has appealed this ruling to the ninth circuit, um, court of appeals. And so there's been a little bit of movement there. We haven't gotten a decision on, uh, the requested stay. This judge also issued his ruling without a stay, right? That, that's one key bit as well. Yeah, so he, the state at the hearing, an hour, which was ended up being an hour before his ruling, uh, asked if he uh, ruled for us to any degree that he stay that ruling so they could have time to appeal. And he didn't. Um, and I think be, this being the status quo is a big reason why he ignored that request. So now they're asking the Ninth Circuit on an emergency basis. Uh, so this will be heard by a three-judge panel that handles the emergency appeals for this month that rotates every month. It, it's not the same panel that's ultimately going to hear the appeal on the merits. Right. So, so California um, so, has appealed. Yeah. Uh, so the, ju the judge issued the ruling. He didn't put a stay on it, which means it's in effect right mm -hmm. now. Uh, although, yes, you know, in practice, it doesn't really mean anything because the law wasn't going into an effect until, until January, January anyway. first, Right. But um, yeah. it's in effect now. Uh, the mechanics of that means that while California is, is appealing this ruling, um, they want the appeals court to issue a stay to make sure that their law does go into effect in January. That would be the practical application of all this. Like California wants the law to go in effect. This ruling as it stands now would keep it from going into effect and keep things as the status quo, like the thing, the way they are today. Um, well, depending on when you're listening to this, because we're filming it yeah. um, on the 28th of December. Uh, so in a couple of days, this will have more practical implications. But, um, you know, as we reach the new year here, this the, the state wants a stay on the lower court ruling, which would let them put their law into effect. You guys don't want that stay to be issued so that the law will not be able to go into effect. Right. Correct. Yeah. So we, we filed our, uh, we got an order on Christmas Eve telling us, you know, what the scheduling order is. We, at that point, we were already working on it. In fact, I started drafting our opposition before I even had the state's motion because I knew it was coming and I knew what they'd argue. Sure. Uh, and it, wasn't surprising. Um, but anyway, so so we filed our uh, opposition and the basic themes of our opposition are three things. First of all, we're likely to succeed on the merits for all the reasons the district court said. But second, we're preserving the status quo. Um, so which uh, tends to be that should favor us like a, a thing that, yeah, courts that should like be important to do in these sorts of situations, yeah. right? Not often, not in Second Amendment cases, you know, the, the, the New York and New Jersey ones were allowed to go into effect, yeah, uh, at least part. Of, I think New Jersey stayed the vampire rule and the restriction on carrying and or didn't stay those, but stayed the rest. But anyway, uh, so that should favor. I guess it kind of tends to be a favorance towards the government um, in a lot of these yes, situations. Yeah. Like if the law is already in effect, courts like to leave yeah. it in effect until the merits get played out. 
if it's not in effect yet, right. they might still let it go into effect while the, the legal challenge gets played. Unfortunately, yes. And they're not supposed to do that, but they do. So so we argue we're just preserving the status quo here. We do cite, you know, we we cite some of the Ninth Circuit dissents in Duncan, which said, like, this court doesn't take the Second Amendment seriously, basically. So we're mm -hmm. kind of telling the court, hey, this is a chance to redeem yourself. At least give us this. At least give us, you know, when the status quo is on our side, don't let the law go into effect. We argue that the state doesn't have damages because, again, people with CCW permits are law-abiding. And finally, we, we point out that the Hawaii injunction has been in effect since August. So that was a little funny in that Hawaii tried to stay with the Ninth Circuit and the Ninth Go ask the district court first, then come back to us because that's the proper process. So they went and asked the district court in August. District court did nothing. And then bizarrely, Hawaii didn't go back to the ninth or do anything, which is great for gun owner, you know, people with carry permits in Hawaii that they didn't. But it was a little strange. So we tell we're telling the ninth circuit now, look, this injunction in Hawaii has been in effect this whole time and no harm has resulted. So it would be crazy unfair for you to take away Californians right to carry, you know, while this Hawaii injunction remains in place. And I think the Hawaii appeal, it's been fully briefed. It'll be heard in April. There's a chance our case now might be consolidated with that one because they do want a quick briefing schedule. I think the state's opening brief is due in January, our, our opposition in February. So it sounds mm -hmm. like they're trying to move us in with Wolford and decide this all at once. Uh, that That's just speculation, though. We'll see what the Ninth Circuit does. Um, Speaking so, of speculation yeah. here, uh, you mentioned that the uh, the scheduling for all this was, was put out on December 24th, so Christmas Eve. And it was after hours, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was late in the evening on Christmas Eve. Um, and there is speculation. You can read that either way. Um, it could be that, you know, a state is the state, the Ninth Circuit is moving quickly to help California before the January 1st deadline. You could also interpret it as a panel favorable to us trying to keep this before the motions panel changes on January 1st, because what they could do is issue what's called an administrative stay, which stays the ruling. So stays our win until the first couple weeks of January until a panel can look at it. So then they'll decide it and people will lose their right to carry for a couple weeks, I guess, or until it's it's uh, it's done. But they didn't do that. They, they clearly want to decide this before January 1st. They told us on December 24th for us to respond by December 27th. And the state gets till tomorrow, December 29th at noon to file its reply. Um, and then it, it sounds like we'll have a ruling tomorrow afternoon. We don't know that for sure. It might go into the weekend. Uh, but that would but be December 29th as we're recording here. Yeah, tomorrow. Obviously yeah, tomorrow, December 29th. A little later. But, um, yeah. Okay, interesting. So, yeah, we'll, we'll obviously have to keep on top of that and and see where where this ends up um, because it is going to have like i said in a couple of days here it's going to have real practical implications uh, right now it doesn't matter technically because the law wouldn't go into effect until january anyway but uh it's going to matter real fast um so uh yeah we will we will certainly keep an eye on it where do you expect uh you know how are you feeling about appeals uh what, what are you thinking is the sure. potential uh end game here well, I, a little speculation. I don't think California is confident in its position because if you read their motion to stay at the very end, they suggest a far narrower stay. So the, the, on paper, they're asking for a stay of the whole ruling, even the vampire rule, which has been rejected even by the Second Circuit. Uh, but at the very end of their motion, they say, well, could you at least give us parks and playgrounds and parking lots of, play, of, of places that plaintiffs didn't challenge? And I think one or two other things. So uh, we could, if we have a divided panel, get a split decision here where they give us, they let us keep the injunction on, on some stuff, but not others. We'll have to see. But from there, uh, you know, we'll see how the appeals goes. Um, 
I think, you know, we're all waiting to see what the Third Circuit rules. I think the Third Circuit oral argument went better than the Second Circuit oral argument. And I think that might also influence what the Ninth Circuit does, because if if you have a major circuit disagreeing with the Second Circuit, then that'll complicate things greatly. But it's all it's obviously going to come down to uh, I'm sorry to say who is on the panel. That's just the reality of it. You know, we could get a good panel draw on the appeal. We could get a bad panel draw or something in between. Um, and unfortunately, it shouldn't be this way, but unfortunately, who you have on the panel is going to be important. Like if we, you know, if we get Judge Van Dyke and Judge Lee, uh, we'll probably do pretty well, you know, but if we, you know, have uh, judges that have historically been hostile to the Second Amendment, we will not do as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, although you, you never know, I suppose, um, not all these judges have, have, uh, had cases that are deal with the second amendment since Bruin, right? That's correct. Uh, perhaps we'll some of them have changed their minds. You know? Yeah. Um, I guess, well, it'll be interesting either way. Uh, and, and then from there, what the Supreme court decided to do with all this, uh, will be even more interesting. Right. Yeah. Anton Yuck could end up the, the New York case if that if they you know, they I know they've been hesitant to take preliminary injunction rulings. But mm-hmm. given they already commented on Anton Yuck once, I would hope that they take cert on that case, assuming the plaintiffs there decide to go for Supreme Court relief, because uh, that could clear up a lot of questions. Now, of course, maybe Bont is a far more expansive challenge than uh, Anton Yuck, because they I think they ended up not having standing for things like public transportation and a few others. Um, and we we you know, so our case will still be viable, even we'll still have things to do even after that. But uh, the Supreme Court could definitely clarify things for everyone. Yeah. Okay. So this case could still end up at the high court, even if the second circuit case gets there first. It's definitely possible. Of course, I would hope that if the Supreme Court, you know, takes Anton Yuck and rules as I expect they will, that the Ninth Circuit will get the message and make rule rule appropriately. But historically, that hasn't always been the case, you know, so we'll see. All right. Well, we will have to have you back on in the future to see what happens with all of this. Um, and maybe maybe even Reno May will come back. He, oh, I'm uh, sure he'd, I'd, I'm sure he'd be happy too good to come on this week. <laughs> <laughs> now a case is I'm named after him, dude. He's, 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 big time. <laughs> he's got a big head now. He's, he's like, uh, I don't need to go on the reload podcast I'm holding out for something bigger. No, I, uh, we had Reno May, the, the plaintiff in the case is also a popular uh, gun YouTuber who lives in California on to discuss the case a while back. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have him on in the future. Uh, I'm sure he was busy this week with uh, it is the week between Christmas and New Year's. So uh, maybe he's he might still just be hung over from all that, like most people. I mean, so, he's probably partying from our win last week. I, I would there hope. you go. Um, but, yeah, no, we'll have one of you guys on in the future once this case gets to the next point, next stopping point. Um, and and, yeah, well, we look forward to that update. Uh, but, yeah, for now, we're, where can people find your work or, or learn more about the California Rifle and Pistol Association, stuff like that, if they want to. Sure, sure. Well, you can find me. I, I've been known to tweet from time to time um, at Moros Costas, M-O-R-O-S-K-O-S-T-A-S at Twitter. Uh, I still call it Twitter X is a stupid name. Um, yeah. And um, CRPA.org. Please go support the CRPA as well as the Second Amendment Foundation and Gun Owners of America, who are plaintiffs in this case, and the Liberal Gun Club. There's so many. Um, and uh, of course, Michelle and Associates, my law firm, if you need legal help around gun laws or other stuff, we do non-gun stuff too. Check out uh, Michelle and Associates uh, and find us there. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. It's always a pleasure.
All right. Appreciate it. We're going to head over to our news update now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined as always by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty good. Had a had a pretty good Christmas holiday there, and now we're in that sort of week between Christmas and New Year's that uh, feels like a like a lost week all the time. You know, yeah, we, we did manage to put together a full. Uh, newsletter and break news that I'm sure no one is going to read because who's paying attention right now? <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, you know, it's one of those things where you, it's hard to keep track of what day it is and what's going on in the world. And there isn't a lot going on um, in the world, really, uh, news wise. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I'm doing fairly well. How about you? Yeah, no, I'm kind of in the same situation. Had a nice Christmas and now just kind of working through the the dead week where everyone's kind of working, but not working and the news is slow and it's just sort of a yeah. weird transition space. But you know, yeah. things were good. Good holidays. Yeah. And I got I even got some gun related stuff for Christmas. So I, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, after we go through the news update. But I'm pretty excited to try that out. And and uh, and I think you had some some gun related gifts I think you gave some this this time, if I'm uh, if I'm understanding it right, and uh, so we'll we'll get into some of that stuff after we go through the news update here. Speaking of which, what do we what do we got first? What's our first headline? Yeah, so uh, one of the newsletter headlines. We obviously had a uh, a big passing of a famous gun innovator this week, uh, Gaston Glock, who obviously is the was the patriarch of the namesake firearms company, uh, passed away at age ninety four this week. Um, so that's obviously, you know, it's a big deal. It's like seeing a, a Browning or, or a Colt pass. He was, uh, an innovator, uh, a guy who didn't invent, but, but essentially popularized the modern polymer framed striker fired handgun that is sort of ubiquitous now in the world of firearms. So, uh, yes, Very ubiquitous. Quite a I have a little, I have a little, uh, USB holder thing that is shaped like a, like a Glock. I don't know. <laughs> 47 apparently hmm, weird uh that they gave out a shot show this year so yeah uh, the glock the the uh the famous polymer gun um obviously came in took over the industry now basically every handgun out there is a some sort of variation on the glock design uh like you said not not that striker fires striker fire wasn't new Semi-automatic wasn't new. None of this stuff was like brand new technology, but <clears throat> he put his own twist on it that became extremely popular and still persists to today as a very uh, reliable and functional firearm design that basically the rest of the industry has has aped for themselves. Um, uh, although I did see the New York Times write-up of this <laughs> was still like, you know, it's one thing they, you know, they point out like, oh, bad guys and good guys use Glocks or whatever. It's just like, like Toyotas, right? I mean, if you've ever seen any video of any terrorist group, they're driving around in Toyotas with, you know, uh, machine guns welded to them somehow. Um, but, and I got no problem with that. Uh, but yeah, they still are making these base level common mistakes at the New York times, the largest paper in the world, plenty of resources to understand that, the difference between a clip and a magazine and they still make that mistake. This is one of the most common complaints that you see 
from gun owners uh, against media coverage about like the ignorance of it. And, it, and I just am so amazed that this still happens even at a place like the New York Times that they don't know. There is a difference between a clip and a magazine. A magazine is what go, you insert into your handgun or rifle or even some shotguns, um, which holds the ammunition and uh, feeds the gun. A clip is basically a piece of metal that assists you in loading a magazine, essentially, usually an internal magazine that's not detachable. But they still they still get that wrong. And it just it always like, amazes me because it's it's one of the most common things people complain about. And it, 2023 they're still doing that um so anyway minor thing relatively minor right but still if you're getting that wrong then people right. don't trust anything else you have to say at that point i think uh, especially so at a newspaper have, like the times like they have yeah, the resources yeah. to get that right <laughs> and it has an impact beyond just that that technical error because like it's just such a common thing you just make this mistake once on the internet and you will have a hundred people tell you <laughs> that it's wrong and so i don't know how they still manage that even with the resources i am sure there are people at the new york times who know the difference between a clip and magazine anyway this is way off topic from the <laughs> passing of uh, guests on glock uh obviously big news in the gun world um big news like you said similar to the passing of um many other famous designers Colts or or browning before them uh because glock is responsible for the innovation that has led to modern semi-automatic handguns as we know them today that's right and then uh, the other newsletter link that we're going to hit today just quickly uh from the new york times sort of following up on the covenant parents so those are the parents of the the children that were killed in that mass shooting in, in Nashville, Tennessee earlier this year. They obviously made big headlines earlier because they became activated on the issue of gun control, pushing for it during the Tennessee special session, and things got kind of raucous and out of hand, and nothing really came of it. Um, in this reporting, I just wanted to, I included it just to point out that, you know, these folks are still staying engaged on the issue of guns, and it's sort of an ongoing trend that we've seen, especially in the last year, I want to say, of states that were gun control typically hasn't been a high priority for the electorate, either because they're a red state or they're just a, a maybe a rural low crime state, but because of tragedy have become, it's gun politics have become a much more salient issue. I'm thinking of obviously Covenant in Nashville and Tennessee. I'm thinking of Lewiston, Maine, where Maine has traditionally been a very pro-gun state, despite being purple politically, and now guns are becoming a hot button issue. Uh, so I think it's a trend that's going to be worth following uh, and watching closely just to see how it develops. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Tennessee was a place where the governor, the Republican governor, tried to get a sort of modified red flag law through right. uh, with support of these uh, these parents um, and other activists there, but didn't honestly didn't even come close because uh, by the time it came to he called a special session, by the time it actually happened, he dropped support for this or at least not made an official recommendation for it. So. Um, Hasn't led to a, a real world shift yet, but it certainly could over time. It's absolutely worth watching how that plays out um, down there in Tennessee or up in Maine, where I think they probably have a little bit better chance of seeing some sort of reforms enacted. I don't know exactly where they're where they'll end up. <clears throat> you know, if the 
because Maine, as you mentioned, <clears throat> a rural state with a very strong gun culture uh, that hasn't experienced many of these sorts of uh, acts of mass violence before. So, um, you know, it has the potential to change the calculation for the the lawmakers there. And we will keep uh, watching both of those and everywhere else in the country, of course, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, speaking of Maine, that kind of leads us into the stories we wrote this week. Uh, yeah. One of them has to do with uh, footage that was obtained through a FOIA request. The Portland Press Herald is a local paper up there. Uh, FOIA, the, uh, I don't know how to pronounce the county, Sagadohuk County Sheriff. I'm sure I'm some sure Mainers, whoever's was, listening uh, that are Mainers, they'll, they'll correct my I'm butchering sure that of that. sure was terrible, but you, yeah. you, did, you gave it your best effort. <laughs> um, they FOIA'd the, the county sheriff's request and found some uh, body cam and dash cam recordings of, of deputies responding to wellness checks at the Lewiston Maine shooter's home, uh, mm -hmm. leading up, obviously, months before his eventual attack. And the big revelation was that the yellow flag law, Maine's, basically Maine's version of a red flag law, uh, was actually brought up as a potential solution. And then eventually that uh, sergeant at the county sheriff's office decided against it because he didn't want to throw a stick of dynamite in a pool of gas, basically didn't want to create a volatile situation right. with someone that was already That's what obviously said, yeah. unstable. Yeah. So <clears throat> that gives us some more insight into the situation. They Law enforcement was well aware of the, uh, the option to use that law uh, in this situation, although he did mentioned that there, you know, there may have been complications with, with providing the sort of uh, probable cause needed to initiate the process. That was another concern. But the main one seemed to be <clears throat> a combination of officer safety, you know, obviously trying to uh, confiscate firearms from somebody who is um, unstable, like the main shooter was, is inherently dangerous thing um, for, for law enforcement. And then also, uh, the, the other half of that concern seemed to be that they thought that might actually make things worse. Um, which is another reasonable concern to have, I think, right. In a situation like that, especially when, you know, it's very easy to look on these things in hindsight and say, well, you know, obviously the greater concern of him killing people should have been uh, the top priority here because that's what ended up happening. Uh, but it, it is important to keep in mind, I think, that most situations with somebody who's um, going through a difficult time or, or having a mental health struggle, they aren't going to end up hurting anyone else. They, uh, they are more likely to hurt themselves, but even that, you know, even in that scenario, that may not be the most likely outcome. And if you, um, add pressure to the situation, it could make it worse. And that's sort of essentially what this officer had determined. And, um, that's why they, they chose to try and intervene with the family instead of directly, or you, instead of using the yellow flag law to, um, you know, detain him and then, uh, have him go through the court process for getting a, uh, confiscation order. So, you know, it's not an entirely unreasonable approach that he took. Um, and it shows sort of some of the main shortcomings of these types of, of laws. Uh, and then, of course, the actual outcome of the situation where a lot of people were were murdered shows the uh, 
the potential consequences of not acting as well. So, you know, it, I know that, uh, and, and I, I talk about this a lot in these situations that usually there are a lot of, there are red flags, there are signs, there are warnings that people do notice deterioration and oftentimes, including this, this main situations, people, some people will act. And some people did act here. A number of people did act, you know, his commanding officer, that's who the, the, the law enforcement officer was speaking to on this recording. Uh, he tried, he had him involuntarily committed. He tried calling police. He tried getting them to do wellness checks. Um, you know, his family made some efforts as well. It sounds like, but ultimately if everyone doesn't in the chain, uh, that's needed to prevent something like this happening, doesn't act exactly the way that is necessary, it can still fall apart. And it's very difficult to uh, prevent these things. Uh, even, even when in hindsight, you can look at the failure points and say, if this had been done differently, perhaps this wouldn't have happened. And so here's one of those failure points and you can look at, you can look at this conversation and say, well, if he had decided to go through with the yellow flag, well, maybe that would have worked. Maybe it wouldn't have. We don't know, obviously, can't know. Um, but we also get real world insight into why that decision was made, um, which is important to understand too. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's the big takeaway from that story for sure. Um, and then, and, and I think you did a great job uh, writing that one up and, and going through all of that. Uh, you know, and they, they did a, there's also, um, an internal investigation or, or I guess an outs an independent investigation where they, yeah. I mean, the sheriff's office cleared themselves of wrongdoing with, so how much value people put into that is, um, you know, obviously up, up to every individual to decide. You can read the whole report. Basically they, they say that the officers acted reasonably given the circumstances and, uh, they recommended a couple of, um, relatively minor changes to policy. Uh, you know, utilizing more mental health resources um, that, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, like I said, people will have to decide for themselves uh, whether or not that that report is how much it's worth to them. I, I think it's you know, a lot of these internal reports are th technically third party reports that were generated at the request of a department that is involved in a, a failure like this are you know, I, I'm skeptical of them, but the, they're still worth reading. They give you a lot of detail, but that's in your piece as well. And I think that's appropriate. Yeah, people should check it out. Um, and then the final story that we covered this week uh, has to do with Hawaii, specifically the city of Honolulu and how they're handling people that are applying to be able to purchase firearms. Uh, if you want to tell us uh, what the situation is over there right now. Yeah, I mean, it's Honolulu has gotten most of the attention here likely because it's the largest city in the, in the state, the largest county in the state as well. Um, but it does seem to apply. It does seem to be a situation that's happening across the state. Um, but effectively, gun sales and gun carry permitting are cut off right now um, and will be for at least another week or two at the very least, it, it appears, because of sort of negligence in implementing the state's new Bruin response law, which includes reforms to their gun safety licensing program, 
So, uh, you know, instruct in, in Hawaii to buy a gun at all, any gun, uh, unlike other states where this is usually, uh, even in the strictest states, this only applies to handguns and most, uh, most of the time. But in Hawaii, it applies to long guns as well, shotguns and rifles. Uh, in addition to handguns, really all guns, you need a purchase permit. <clears throat> but to get that permit, um, you know, like the concealed carry permit, which is obviously is more common requirement for concealed carry permits. Um, you need to have a state approved training course that you've completed. And the, the problem is that these counties in Hawaii haven't updated their certification programs to match this new state law yet. And the state law goes into effect in January, but also these permit, these purchase permits only have are only valid for, <clears throat> I believe, two weeks. So Honolulu has stopped issuing them now because they don't want to issue the permits that would be valid beyond when they're actually, when this law change happens. And they also don't have that new certification pro process in place for instructors, yet their hearing for this isn't until January 9th. And then from there, it would take another 10 days at least for that uh, the new rules to be finalized, uh, at least. And so, yeah, I mean, they stopped issuing permits, it sounds like, on December 18th. And they're not going to be issuing them again, perhaps for uh, as many as 40 days beyond January 1st, because that's the, the new law gives them 40 days to process these applications anyway. Um, and the city attorney has said they're trying to, that their plan is to be able to, to comply with that. But that means effectively sales, gun sales there uh, have been cut off and will be cut off for at least a while longer because you can't get the training that's required to get the permit because there's no certified instructors at this point right. under the new law. Uh, so you can sort of see this catch 22 situation that is devolved into a essentially gun sales ban. Yeah. And you wrote a, an interesting members piece about why, because obviously a, a total gun sales ban is, is bound to raise some constitutional questions, right? Uh, Cause it's obviously a <laughs> yeah, second amendment right so. being deprived. Uh, but you wrote an interesting analysis piece about why it's not going to be so easy to try to resolve those constitutional questions, just based on how the courts work and how our legal standards work for, for challenging these types of things. Yeah, that's, so, you know, when, when we broke news of this and we were the first ones to report on this, um, there was a lot of reaction of like, oh, well, there's going to be lawsuits. And this is obviously a Second Amendment violation and Honolulu and Hawaii, these other counties are going to have trouble in court. And uh, it's very obvious why people would think that, because it's an extremely straightforward Second Amendment violation here to just basically make it impossible for somebody to legally purchase a gun in the state. The problem is challenging that is more complicated than you might think because of the nature of what's going on here. Uh, for instance, you know, this new state law, this broom response law, we've talked a lot about broom response laws. I believe we covered this when they passed it at the time. It's very similar to the other ones out there in California or New Jersey or New York or Massachusetts, the other places that have passed these sorts of things after the Supreme Court's Bruin decision. Um, and that's being challenged by Alan Beck, who's a gun rights lawyer who does almost all of the gun rights challenges in Hawaii. Hawaii is a very small state, obviously. So th this is sort of starts with one of the, the problems. 
it's a small state. It's not, it doesn't have a very um, vibrant gun culture in the sense that not a lot of people own guns there. There are not a lot of gun rights activists. They do exist. The Hawaii Firearms Coalition is the group that brought um, the situation to the public's attention that, you know, these sales are cut off. Uh, and, and there just aren't, you know, a lot of lawyers there challenging these sorts of things. Alan Beck is almost the only one, and he's not even backed by any of the major gun rights groups, you know, not directly. He doesn't work for any of them. Um, and, and so it, it, you have a, a place where there aren't a lot of people to challenge this law. There aren't a lot of lawyers to take up those challenges. And the other half of it is um, it's hard to fight a situation like this where the harm is caused by more negligence than intention. Uh, and it, in theory, at least, well, one of the big factors as to whether or not this there's going to be a lawsuit is how long this drags out. If they actually get things done in a relatively quick manner and start issuing permits again relatively soon, there's not going to be a lawsuit. I'll just say that, like, because there won't be anything to challenge on at that point. Uh, it'll become moot as soon as they actually start this process back up again, which they seem intent on actually doing. They're just kind of being lazy about it. Like they knew this change was coming. They just didn't go through the process of adopting new rules and everything uh, in a timely manner. So now there's, there's this gun sales cutoff because of that. Uh, now it's not cut off because the state law cuts it off. There is a path in the state law to being able to buy these guns or get the carry permits. Um, it's incompetence or negligence in implementing those rules that, so you, one, you'd have to sue the local authorities, not the state. Uh, so you'd have to sue across the state, uh, these different jurisdictions. Uh, you'd have to find different plaintiffs. You'd have to find, um, so that's a complication, not a, not a, not one that's impossible to overcome. Then you'd have to get a, a suit filed pretty quick and you'd have to get um, a, a judge to act quickly. And there's a couple, there's a number of reasons why that might not happen. Like judges generally, even if they ideologically are on the more conservative end of the spectrum, they're, even if they're liberal on the ideological end, they're both tend to be the Judiciary, the federal judiciary tends to be conservative in a uh, broader sense than that, like a, in a legal sense. They're, they're not eager to go in and disrupt what the elected officials are doing unless they feel they have to. And so if you take a case that involves them dragging their feet or basically uh, sales being cut off by due to incompetence rather than intention, um, it's much harder for you to get a judge to order something when the, if the if the defendants if the officials can make the case that they're they're trying to fix this or they're going to fix this without the judge getting involved um and also like it's just it takes a while for the courts to work and so if, if things resolve themselves in a couple of weeks there's not you know, you file this case you spend the money you're unlikely to actually win uh, because it'll be moot by the time the court even gets around to to doing something, to, to reading briefs on the matter, to uh, take a while to write an opinion on something like this. That all takes time. And, um, you know, a right delayed is, is a right denied. And so it shouldn't matter under the legal standard. 
but in practice, I think it, it will. And plus, you're, you know, Hawaii's in the Ninth Circuit. You're unlikely to find uh, a friendly judge there anyway. Uh, so on top of that sort of deference to elected officials, whenever possible, you also are probably going to have to deal with a judge who's ideologically opposed to what you're trying to do. And now they still, you know, I, I think even a liberal judge is going to understand that you can't just cut off gun sales completely. Um, uh, and so eventually they would act, but it's in real life that you're probably going to have to have a, a delay of months for a suit to really become viable. Now you can do other things like super nominal damages, super a dollar worth of damages. Um, because that's the other part. It's like somebody not being able to buy a gun is obviously being harmed. Uh, their, their rights are being infringed on, but they're not facing necessary like a, um, monetary damages from that fact. Uh, now, you know, maybe something happens where that you could come into play, but most people are, are not going to face any sort of monetary damage from not being able to buy a gun. Um, now the, the FFLs might have a stronger case cause they're, they, maybe they're losing out on money. Although even there you, you'd have to show that there are damages and not just delayed sales or something along those lines. So, you know, I guess at the end of the day, mootness is the biggest problem that you face in challenging something like this, even something as straightforward as a total blocking of gun sales. Uh, if it's short enough period of time and it happens in a place where not a lot of people are affected because it's a small jurisdiction, uh, it can in practice be very difficult to actually uh, win a suit there. And it'd be expensive to try if you're not sure that that this is going to last long enough for you to actually win, if that makes sense. Because you won't get your lawyer's fees back. Um if if the case gets mooted, I mean, even if you even if you do something like nominal damages, and the case goes on for a couple of years, and you win in the end, a judge is unlikely to give you full lawyers' fees for for something like that, uh, especially if the issue was resolved relatively quickly. The actual practical problem, um, and then the court case just naturally takes a long time after that. The judge may not. I think usually in those cases they don't give a, a full award of, of legal fees, so you're you're out a lot of money. Um, I don't know. So those are some of the practical issues. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Doesn't mean you couldn't win. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just noting that a lot of people I think assume this is going to end up in court immediately, and I think that's unlikely. But yeah, we'll no, see. It's a good point. Yeah, it's a good point. But we'll, we'll keep an eye on it for sure. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, Christmas, what are you, you, uh, I think you gave a gun related gift, right? Yeah, I, I did. Yeah. So my girlfriend and I go to the range together quite often, uh, but she's still using sort of old style over the ear muffs, uh, for shooting that don't have the active, active listening that block the decibels and mm. but still allow you to hear, for example, someone speaking to you. Um, so I got her a nice pair of walkers for, for the range to see how she likes them. Um, I, I have a pair of not walkers, but another brand that makes uh, similar active ear pro. Um, and I've been a big fan of them. So I'm hoping that she likes it as well, but that's our, 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 our little entry into gun gifts this year. We didn't do a ton of gun related stuff, but. No, that's, you know, that's interesting. I, I always conflicted about those active uh, ear pro and the one, you know, the ones with microphones, that's what you're talking about, right? Where you can hear people. Yeah. Um, 
because the, the issue for me is like, for whatever reason, they always, they make it sound like the person talking is coming from everywhere at once. Um, so they get kind of disorienting to where after a while. You ever felt that? Yeah, that's definitely the case. Uh, you know, someone talking, you think someone's talking over your shoulder like while you're, you know, in the window at the range or whatever, and you look back, they're not there, but they're on the other side of your shoulder. Yeah. And it, it's just you like, for sure get that effect. It just feels weird to wear them. I, I think they make a lot of sense for, for new shooters, though, because, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, I, I used to use like, like $20 Walmart uh, was like Peltor shotgunners. They have the, the low profile muffs. Uh, and I love those things. But, uh, of course, if you're not used to how to talk on a range, um, obviously, the, the I think the microphone ones can help a lot because you can hear people much more clearly yeah. uh, than you can through regular muffs. Um, and so uh, it definitely makes sense for some people. And, and if you're not bothered by that kind of distortion of, like, directional audio, then, yeah, then they're perfect. I mean, I have some. I'm not saying like, I still yeah. use them. I just... Uh, I, I stick to my cheap <laughs> shotgunner, uh, <laughs> shotgunner twos or whatever they're called. Um, it's just less disorienting that way, but you do have to like know how to listen and speak to somebody on, in a range, especially an indoor range. Um, if you're using this, the old school kind, whereas the, the ones that, you know, those walk, ugh, excuse me, the walkers and, and other brands that have the microphones are much more. Uh, new shooter friendly for sure absolutely um, i got uh i got a gift this year so that was nice nice um, uh you know it's one of those things you get old enough where it's like you know i i don't know what to ask anyway because like, you can buy anything you really <laughs> right. want yeah and so i just kind of end up asking for things i was going to buy anyway so yeah that, that works pretty well and um you know i talked about a lot of my struggles with my red dot on the, the sig sour p uh, 365x macro that i carry you know it has the the sig uh, romeo zero elite which is a plastic uh dot and it has it has the battery on the bottom and the brightness adjustment is way up at the front of, like where you you're almost touching the glass to get to and it's very hard to manipulate um and yeah it's plastic and it comes with a uh, like a metal a very thin metal shield around it and that's what it comes with from the factory and and the battery has died very quickly on that several times and i don't know if that's a battery issue or a dot issue i have been uh still carrying it and it hasn't died since i put like a brand name battery in there so maybe maybe it's just the batteries that were the problem before i don't know but it is a pain to change them because you got to take got to take it off and then you have to re re-zero it every time you change the battery and if they <laughs> if the batteries die every couple of months you're doing that a lot um so i wanted to you know i wanted an upgrade and i looked around and and I, it's i think we talked about this before the market seems to have actually matured a lot and there's a lot more really good options at the mid to lower price ranges uh so I, you know uh, i watched a couple of reviews and and i ended up with the sealy uh Sealy, sealy whatever it's a, it's a chinese brand now that they do use um, uh, american flag branding on their stuff for whatever reason I, I, that's a little bit disingenuous i feel like but um you know it, it's uh it seems like a pretty decent dot it's um it's all metal and it has uh the battery door on the side instead of the bottom and it has uh, some nice 
um, adjustment buttons on the side as well. You know, it seems like a pretty good little dot um, from everything I've seen in reviews. So I'm going to try that out and see how it goes. Uh, it, I've watched some of the torture tests and they've, they're always a little bit much, I think. <laughs> <laughs> this one survived some really absurd torture tests uh, in, you know, YouTube videos. I think uh, Overton Windex is, is one of these YouTubers that I've, that has reviewed this that I've enjoyed his uh, short videos that he does reviewing gear and stuff. Um, and you know, he did all kinds of crazy things to it and still survived. So, you know, it's on the lower end of the, I think, price spectrum and it's made in China. But honestly, I think a lot of the brands out there, even Hollow Sun, which is a really good reputation, uh, Swamp Box, I think is another one. They're all made in China. Uh, I think you'd have to get up to like the, the Trigicons, which like yeah. the arm, the original RMR still has a really good reputation. Um, and maybe the only thing I would switch out to over, over this from right now. But even that you have to take off to change the battery. It doesn't have a side right. loading battery. Yeah. So, you know, uh, but the, you know, the market has seemed to really mature and give you some really good options as a consumer now, uh, whether they're from China or some of the American brands that are a little, a little bit pricier, but maybe that's worth it. It's one of those things where it's like some, I always try to get the best deal I can, but sometimes I wonder if like, is it worth me saving a little bit of money when I'm, when I'm relying on the gun for, to save my right. life, if I, you know, sometimes I wonder about my own value, uh, calculations there, but, um, but I, this one seems like it has all the features I want. It seems durable. I'm going to try it out and see how it goes. Uh, I say you I have guess, to give us an update once you yeah, take it to the range. We'll update it as we go along here. See if I run into any issues like I did with the SIG. Uh, the new SIGs are supposed to be really, not, really, uh, really good as well. So I, I don't know. Maybe I'll try to get one of those if I don't like this one. Um, you know, the, there's a lot, like I said, a lot of innovation, a lot of new stuff that everybody disliked the Romeo Zeros. There are a lot of people did, I guess, because they're plastic, um, especially. But I don't know. The new ones are getting a lot of praise. So they're obviously much more expensive than the polymer one. But uh, I'm going to try this Sealy or Siley and see how it goes. But that's all we've got for this week. Um, we will be back again real soon. Uh, if you like what we're doing here at The Reload, please go on over to thereload.com and subscribe to our free newsletter. You get one email a week. keeps you up to date with everything that's going on with Guns in America. Uh, you can also, of course, buy a membership if you want to support us directly and get access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and exclusive stories that you won't find anywhere else. You also get the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. We just did the, one of those uh, two episodes ago. So looking forward to doing more of those in the future as well. But uh, that's another perk of membership. And of course, if you're not ready to make that sort of financial contribution, you can always rate the podcast, give us a nice review or like us on YouTube, share this with anyone you think might be interested. That helps us as well. So uh, that's all we've got for this week. We will see you guys again real soon.